today's scripture is Matthew chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going to, into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. All right. And let's Once again, thank M Mackenzie. Yeah, thank you, Mackenzie. It's very encouraging to hear from you. Good morning, everybody. Getting set up here. Christmas is coming soon. And uh, I remember one Christmas morning, 1998. A very exciting Christmas morning for me. Uh, I went downstairs uh, at my parents' house, you know, where I grew up. And uh, it was probably 5 or 5.30 in the morning because, you know, I was a kid on Christmas. Uh, to my parents' uh, annoyance, probably, I was down there with my brother, and we could not wait because we were so excited to open a very, very specific gift. We thought, if we get this one gift, that's it. I mean, we're set. This is going to be the best year ever. We were expecting and hoping deeply for a Game Boy Color. Yeah, that's the sound of a generation right there, that mumble. Mm. We wanted a Game Boy Color, and not just the Game Boy Color, but I also wanted Pokemon version blue. That was the one. That was the one where it was at. Uh, millennials, I outed you if you were excited about that. You know, and I thought uh, if I get Game Boy uh, and if I get Pokemon, uh, I'm going to be so deeply satisfied, so happy, right? And we were. Oh, my gosh. We opened it up, and uh, we were thrilled. We were filled with joy, filled with excitement. Um, but as the uh, weeks and months and years rolled by, as you can probably imagine, the shine started to wear off a little bit. Um, and soon the, the object of our affection, the thing that brought so much joy and so much happiness to my life, uh, became relegated to a shelf where it collected dust. And then it moved into a closet and eventually into a box uh, and up in the attic, it was like watching the sad montages from Toy Story, right? <laughs> and the thing that uh, had brought me so much joy once was just an object that was completely forgotten. Forgot about it. Sold it on eBay later. <laughs> now, I'm guessing that probably the majority of you here are not pining deeply uh, for a Game Boy Color. Uh, if you are, we can talk about it afterwards. Um, but I think that there's still something of this, this consumer narrative that rings in my own heart, not for a Game Boy, but for other things. And maybe you're familiar with this consumer refrain, when I get blank, then I'll be satisfied. Does that sound like a familiar story, maybe one that's played out in different ways in your life? For some of us, it's a material story. When I get to this place financially... When I get a new phone or a new car, when I get, uh, when I'm finally able to purchase my first home, then I'll be satisfied with my life. 
for many of us, it's a story of experiences. When I get to experience global travel, food in other cultures, when I can get out of Tucson, right, then I'll be satisfied. Don't get out of Tucson today. But for most of us, and for me especially, I've found that through the years, it's a story of when I get the next life stage, then I'll be satisfied. You know, college students here, you're thinking, when I get through finals, when I get uh, to graduation day, when I finally get my degree, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be happy. But then you're thinking, when I get that good job, when I find a spouse and get married, when I am able to have kids, when my kids sleep, There's some reality to that. When my kids are grown and they go to college, when they have kids, when I retire, and you keep punting, you keep punting happiness down the line, satisfaction down the line, thinking, when I get there, that's when I'll finally, truly be happy. But like the Rolling Stones said in 1965, I can't get no satisfaction. I try, and I try, and I try, and I try. But each time we get to our goal, the shine eventually wears off, and we're left wondering, I'm assuming you're left wondering, because I am, how do I get off of this carousel of discontentment that I live on? How do I escape, how do I exit the emptiness of envy the next stage? Where do I go from here? Is there such thing as real, genuine joy? Well, we're going to look at a text this morning, and I hope that you walk away saying, yes, there is such thing as genuine joy, and it's found in Christ. Let's pray, and then we'll open the text together. Heavenly Father, uh, we acknowledge that you are here with us wherever we go, but you're here with us. We are gathered here because we want to be shaped by you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be moving in us uh, through the text as we look at it. We pray that Christ would be honored. Speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, my name is Keith. I'm one of the pastors here, Uh, and as Dave mentioned, we are going through a series uh, following these these candles, the themes from each week of Advent. Hope, Uh, peace, joy, and love, and this is the week of joy. And I want to give a disclaimer. I was thinking this even as I was worshiping. There's so much that I had to leave on the cutting room floor for this. There's a depth and a reality to pain and suffering that I'm unable to address in 25 or 30 minutes. There's more that could be said here uh, this morning about joy. I'm just going to be dipping my toes in the water. We are going to be looking at Matthew chapter 2, If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand, and one of our ushers will bring a copy of God's Word to you. Uh, If you don't own a copy, this is our gift to you. Please keep it. También tenemos Biblias Españolas. Si necesita una copia de las Escrituras, por favor, levanta la mano y diga Español, y alguien va a traer una copia a usted. Si no tiene en su casa esta, es nuestro regalo a usted. We're in Matthew chapter 2. Uh, verses 1 through 12 this morning. And I'm going to try and answer three questions as I move through the text. 
Uh, First of all, what is the cost of our relentless pursuit of satisfaction through goods, experiences, services? What's the cost of our pursuit of satisfaction? Second, where can we ultimately find joy? What's the source of genuine joy? And then lastly, how can we live it out? So let's start with what's the cost. If you would, look with me at verses 1 through 3 of Matthew chapter 2. It says this. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. So I'm going to take a time out here. Herod is a king over the Jews. There's an important distinction here between over and of. He is a king over the Jews. He was appointed by the Roman Empire to rule over, to manage the Jewish people. He is not a king of the Jews. He is not descended from the royal line. He is not by the people, for the people, from the people. He is a puppet of the empire, okay? Herod the king. And behold, three wise men from the east, most likely from Persia or Babylon, show up to his court in Jerusalem, and they say... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where is the one who's been descended from the royal lineage of David? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, this is the biggest understatement in the whole text, he was troubled. He was troubled. Now why was Herod troubled? Let's, let's think about this. Herod has everything he could possibly want. Herod has wealth. Herod has access to power. Herod has the empire behind him. Herod has the security of the the Roman guard, right? Herod has it all. And when these three wise men show up and say specifically, where is the king? That's a threat to everything that he holds dear, a threat to his power, a threat to his security, a threat to his well-being and his wealth. Idolatry, idolatry, it's said, uh, is worshiping the good gifts of God above and over the giver of gifts. Idolatry is elevating the good gifts of God and worshiping them as ultimate, above and over the good giver of gifts. And my professor, Mike Goheen, says this. It sticks with me. Idolatry always yields injustice. Let me say that again. Idolatry always yields injustice. It's very clear for us as we begin to look at what happens in this text, what the injustice produced is from Herod's idolatry. He worships these good things. He wants to retain control, retain wealth, retain power, and he will do so at any cost, and it always produces injustice. What's going to happen is he asks these three wise men to find out, to ascertain the location of this king because he's hatching a plan to murder this king. And what he decides he's going to do, just to be safe, is that he's going to kill every child aged two and under in the town of Bethlehem, just to be safe. He's going to murder all of the threats to his power, security, and wealth. Herod's idolatry produces injustice. He's trying to retain the good gifts, but what about the injustice from us trying to 
gain God's good gifts. Maybe you're thinking about uh, the discontentment that comes when you want the next stage, when you want something different. What's the cost of that? What's the cost of that in your personal relationships with the people around you? What's the cost of that in your relationship with yourself and mental health? What's the cost of that when it comes to relationships with your family and your friends? Discontentment in itself produces injustice. It is an injustice to the people around you. But that's on an individual level. On a collective level, on a systemic level, in the West, in North America, what is the cost of our collective pursuit of happiness through goods and services and experiences? What's the cost to the environment? What's the cost globally to people in third world countries? People with much less than us. There is a cost to our relentless pursuit, both individually, there's a cost, but also collectively, systemically, corporately, there is great injustice as a result of our collective idolatry, our worship of gaining more goods or retaining the goods that we have. Getting goods, getting stuff does not produce joy. So where can we find joy? Let's keep reading. Verse 9. After listening to the king, the three wise men went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So take yourself back to me on Christmas morning in 1998. Me opening this present. Imagine a 10-year-old kid getting exactly what they wanted for Christmas and how they lose their minds, right? Imagine, stick with me, imagine the U of A football team, not basketball team, the U of A football team winning the national title. Imagine that. What would fans be doing? They'd be going nuts, crazy. We read here that the three wise men rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They're going wild when they see this star over this house. And they go in, and it says that they see the child with Mary, his mother, and then they fall down and worship him. Now, my guess as to why these wise men are so filled with joy, why they can rejoice exceedingly, is twofold. One, they know who Jesus is. They understand Jesus' ultimate identity. Remember what they ask Herod at the beginning. They don't say, hey, where's the, the guy who's kind of under the star? That guy, where, he's a mystery. I don't know who he is. Where is he at? They ask specifically in verse 2, where is the king of the Jews? They understand that Jesus' identity is rooted in a longer and bigger story that goes back historically. They understand that Jesus is the fulfillment of long-awaited hope and expectation. They understand that he's the descendant from Abraham who's going to bring blessing to the nations. 
They understand that he's the descendant of David who's going to rule and reign forever. They have an understanding that Jesus is the fulfillment and the center point of a bigger story. He's the king of the Jews. But not only that, he's not only the king of the Jews, because these men are not Jewish. These men are probably Persian or Babylonian. They have an understanding that Jesus' ultimate identity is that he is the king of all the nations. He is the king of the whole earth, the whole creation itself. They come not as Jews coming to worship a Jewish God, but as men coming to worship the God of all humanity. They understand that he's the fulfillment. They understand that he is the king of all the nations, the whole planet, and they understand that he's more than even that. That he is the divine savior of the world. Because what do they do when they go in there? They fall on their faces and they worship him. They understand that he's God. So where does, where does the joy that they experience, where does that come from? It comes from knowing Jesus' ultimate identity as the long-awaited Jewish Savior, the King of the whole creation, and God himself coming to live among us. They know who Jesus is. But not only that, they understand who they are. Now, I want you to imagine, they're, they're wealthy men. We read in a little bit here, uh, the gifts that they've brought, these are gifts of extravagance. But not only that, they've traveled hundreds, thousands of miles by foot for years, for years to get here. They put whatever they were doing aside in order to come and find out where the king of the Jews was. They're also called magi or wise men, and they, they probably are a part of a status and a class of people in Persia that are extremely educated. I mean, think multiple doctorates, right? They are very intelligent, very educated, very wealthy, and men of a very high status. Yet, yet, when they come in and they see the child, Jesus, with Mary, they fall on their faces. They bend the knee to a baby. This is probably a two-year-old kid at this point. Jesus is probably around two. Uh, how many of you here have a toddler at home? Okay. I just want you to imagine, okay, that scholars from thousands of miles away are knocking on your door, and they come in, and they see your kid with his Paw Patrol shirt on, okay? And he's playing with trucks, and they say, can we see him, right? They come in, and they worship him. How bizarre for Mary, and yet they have a deep understanding that they are really, the Magi, not all that important. We say here at Redemption, we take God seriously and not ourselves, and I think that the Magi must have taken God very seriously and really not taken themselves very seriously because they're bowing as these learned men to a two-year-old. They're worshiping a two-year-old. They understand that they're really not all that special, and yet they're a part of God's narrative of how he's bringing salvation into the world. Wow. You and I are really not all that special. And yet, God loves us, and he wants to use us, 
as part of his plan for bringing the truth, the message of hope and reconciliation to the world. They have a, a right understanding of who Jesus is, and they have a right understanding of who they are. So how do they live it out? Let's keep looking at uh, verse 11, where we left off. Then they opened their treasures, and they offered baby Jesus exactly what every two-year-old wants for Christmas. (laughs) Gold and frankincense and myrrh. I'll be honest, I don't even know what those are. (laughs) Gold and frankincense and myrrh. They're expensive uh, ointments and uh, spices and things. But being warned in a dream to not return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. So how do they live out joy in this circumstance? Well, the first thing that I think they do and I think that we can do uh, together communally is they can practice gratitude. Practicing gratitude. They worship Jesus. That's a posture of thankfulness and gratitude. Um, I propose that we have a posture of radical gratitude together as a community. Um, If you imagine discontentment as a poison that poisons our happiness, it poisons our satisfaction, gratitude is the antidote. Gratitude is the antidote to the poison of discontentment. Um, Something that I think is, is fun and challenging uh, that I'd encourage you to do this week is uh, to take some time at dinner. Now, it works whether you're on your own for dinner and you can journal or with friends or with family or with whoever. Take some time during dinner this week and I want you to get a piece of paper and I want you to write out as many things in three minutes, as many things as you can think of to thank God for, as many of his good gifts that you can thank God for. And you get bonus points the more obscure and minute and random and overlooked and unseen they are, okay? So think like, thank you, God, for the good gift of aluminum. Thank you, God, for the good gift of the color green. Imagine what the world would look like without the color green. Sorry, colorblind folks. (laughs) The world would be a very different place without honeybees. Children are really good at this game. They're really, really good at this game. Uh, When I pray at night with my boys and ask them what they're thankful for, you know what they say? Thank you, God, for plastic. Thank you, God, for water bottles. Thank you, God, for sheets. Thank you, God, for mattresses. And it's hard for us as adults to pray that way, and yet you think about it, thank you, God, for water bottles. Thank you for clean water. Thank you for the gift of mattresses. Why is it hard for us as adults to pray like children? I think it's because as we get older, we lose our sense of wonder with the world. We lose our sense of wonder. Um, If gratitude is the antidote, wonder is the main ingredient. Wonder is the main ingredient. G.K. Chesterton says this, The world will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. Practice this with your friends, with your family at dinner this week, and see if God can increase your sense of wonder at his good creation. So that's the first way, gratitude and wonder 
is the first way that we can live out a posture of genuine joy. Second, generosity. We can practice radical generosity. We see that the wise men here in the story give expensive, lavish, extravagant gifts. Uh, extravagant gifts that they brought with them for hundreds and hundreds of miles. But I want to say to you that generosity is not just financial. God does not need, hear me on this, God does not need your checkbook. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need your bank account, okay? God does not need to use you to prop up institutions of the church More, what God wants from you is he wants to shape you through your giving. He wants to shape you. I heard once when I was in college, someone challenged me, and they said, it's not generosity unless you give until it hurts. It's not generous unless you give until it hurts. Why? Think about Jesus. What did he do? How did he give to us? He gave until it hurt. He gave his very life for us, in fact. God does not need your money. He wants to use generosity as a tool, as a means to shape you and form you to be more like Christ and to show that to other people. Generosity is a way that we can embody and live out true joy, but not just giving financially, as I mentioned. You can give through your time, your talents, your network. And here's one very practical way you can think about it. Hospitality. You can open your home, you can open your one-bedroom apartment, and you can invite people to come into your life, into your home. Now, Christmas is coming up, and Christmas is not always a happy time for everybody, right? In fact, some of you here are probably dreading being alone on Christmas morning. Here's what I would propose. If you have a home or an apartment or any space that you live that you would like to invite somebody to come and be with you on Christmas morning, write it on a Connect card, drop it off at the Connect desk, and let us know. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're thinking, that's me, I don't have a place on Christmas Eve, I don't have a place on Christmas morning, you know what I want you to do? I want you to be brave. I want you to be courageous. I want you to write on a Connect card. I want you to take it to the Connect desk and drop it off and let us know. And I would like to personally connect you so that we can live out generosity and hospitality together as a community. Amen? Lastly, the wise men are generous. They're they're filled with gratitude. But lastly, they go and tell. Now, I'm using a little bit of imagination here because the text does not explicitly say that they go and then start an evangelism campaign or something, okay? But imagine being filled with exceedingly great joy and then going home and telling no one. Doesn't make any sense at all. If you know uh, me, or especially if you know my wife at all, you've probably heard about Bookman's and why Bookman's is amazing. People who know Desiree are like, yeah, she never shuts up about Bookman's. She loves Bookman's. The reason Desiree tells people about Bookman's is because it brings her a sense of joy. She loves Bookman's. She loves books. She loves the place. And she wants to share that reality with other people. 
the wise men could not possibly have gone back to their home and not brought what gave them such exceedingly great joy to their neighbors, to their family, to their friends, to the other wise men, their co-workers. They did not keep it to themselves, and folks, we shouldn't either. We know the very same king. He's still the king. He's still the savior. He's still the one who's the fulfillment of long-awaited hope and expectation, and he's the one who's coming back to set the world right. We know this savior king. We know who he is, and we know who we are. We take him seriously and not ourselves. And we know with confidence that despite the circumstances that change day to day, moment to moment in our own lives, he's coming back to finish the job. He's coming back for restoration. He's coming back to make the world new. And in that day, there will be no more idolatry. There will be no more injustice. There will be no more consumerism. There will be no more ecological disaster impending. There will be no more discontentment with our lives. He's going to set it all right. And genuine joy will last forever in a restored earth. That type of joy is not fake or trite or contrived. That type of joy does not shift or change. It holds fast through the circumstances of our lives. It cannot help but be grateful For even the smallest things, like aluminum, it cannot be help, but be generous with time and money and resources and network. It cannot help but go and tell others. Folks, as a community, you and I, living in the midst of a world that is captivated by consumerism, but lives out discontentment, in the midst of that world, we can go out and live a better story, a story of genuine joy. Let's pray. Jesus, we long for your return. We long for the day when you're going to come and set all things right. Come soon. But in the now, we pray that we we would be a sign that we would be a marker of that final day. Would you bring a piece of that new reality, that eternal, genuine joy now here in this place, in this room, in our hearts, so that when we are living in Tucson, in Arizona, in our world, that we would point like a bright light, a neon sign to your coming day of restoration. We pray that by the power of the Spirit, you would empower us to experience joy and live out gratitude and generosity, and that we would tell others about you, King Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.